You're listening to Critical Faith, a podcast about religion and public life, sponsored by the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, Ontario. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student here at ICS. On Critical Faith, we explore the contours of religion in a plural society. We hear from researchers, activists, educators, students, and more, as we try to think through what makes faith such a crucial component of so many of our lives. Along the way, we also let ourselves be troubled by some hard questions about our own traditions, spiritualities, and communities. In the last episode, we heard from Kate Hennessy, author of Dorothy Day, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. As Dorothy Day's granddaughter, Kate had some especially valuable and vulnerable insights to share. In this episode, I interview Kate about her writing, her life, her family, and the Catholic worker in a new century. After that, Kate takes some questions from the audience. Uh, Just a fair warning, I had a bit of a cold, which is something of a theme on this podcast so far since we record in the fall during cold season in Toronto. But Kate's intimate portrait of one of the most radical contemporary Christian movements should distract you from the sniffling and throat clearing. If you like what you heard, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. That's a really helpful thing for podcasts just starting out. It helps people to find us, it keeps us on the radar, and you can also find more information about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies at icscanada.edu. Like uh, Hector was saying earlier, we'll do a short interview with some prepared questions that I sent ahead of time. And and I didn't read until this morning. Yeah, well, uh, that's quite all right. I'll try not to blindside you with anything. Um, Oh, go ahead. All right, great. Well, don't give too much permission too quickly. (laughs) um, So we'll do this interview, and then afterwards there will be a Q&A, and um, it is being recorded, and it would be great if you feel comfortable, uh, if you were willing to come forward and use the microphone. Otherwise, it's awkward later because it's like a vague question out there somewhere and then a well-recorded response. So anyhow, we'll go ahead with this first off. So if you could just tell us, Kate, just about your life as an author, maybe something about your process and the successes and uh, the challenges of kind of the life that you've chosen, trying to think really hard about your family and what that means to you, what it might mean to other folks. Uh, how has that journey gone for you? Um, well, <laughs> it's not for the faint-hearted, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I'm sure there's some writers in the crowd. There's always writers in the crowd. Um, and people ask me, you know, for advice on writing. And, um, you know, I have, since I was seven, since I saw my grandmother the first time sitting at a typewriter, writing, um, and I realized what she was doing. My mother told me what she was doing. I have known that I wanted to be a writer. Um, and then, of course, life interferes, and by the time I hit teenagehood, I kind of moved away from it. I lost it, um, and it took me a while to return to it. Um, this book has been, uh, it has been so difficult. I really, I mean, when people say, well, what kind of advice do you have? I say, don't do it. <laughs> Only do it if you have to do it. And I really had to do this. I had to write this book because if I didn't write it, no one would write it. And the story of my mom and the story of Dorothy Day as a write, as a, sorry, as a mother would be lost. So I was, I had a whip, you know, at my back 
um, to do this. And it took me a long time. It took me almost seven years to write it. Um, and there was a, there was a, there was a, um, such a difficult process. I don't know how to put it. I felt probably until the last two or three months before I actually finished the manuscript well enough to hand to other people to read, I thought I had failed. You know, I thought that this book was not coming together, that, um, you know, that, that I was giving a task that was beyond my capabilities. And the, re the only thing that I could keep saying to myself to keep going was, I can only do the best I can. Um, so, you know, just kind of giving me permission to, to be as bad as I, as I needed to be to write this, write this tale. Um, that said, I will keep writing. I cannot stop writing. And, and I, and I, that's another bit of advice. The first advice, don't be a writer. And the second advice, piece of advice is that if you have to be a writer, um, I mean, well, only be a writer if you absolutely have to, if, if that's what your vocation calls you to do and you cannot think of doing anything else. Um, you know, the, the, the other thing that I'd like to say about writing this book is that it's, a, it's an extraordinary responsibility to write about family members, both who are alive and, and those who are dead. Um, I felt such a, uh, a huge responsibility to make sure I got this story as accurately as I could because there's a lot of misinformation out there about my grandmother. And so I really wanted to correct, um, uh, you know, um, misstatements, um, you know, alternate facts, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, and also, you know, I was writing about people who could not respond to me. Those, the, you know, my mother had, had just died in 2008. Um, you know, my, my parents were dead, my grandparents were dead. And, and so the responsibility of writing about people who could not you know, push back if I, if I went wrong. So that was, that was a huge thing on my mind. And the second thing that was really on my mind was the responsibility to my siblings. Um, because they are, they are in this book. I mean, this is a personal story. This is a family story. And, um, and so it was essential for me. Uh, and I open wounds. Uh, you know, I do open family wounds in this book. And it was essential for me to not leave these wounds open, but to kind of bring some kind of healing. So, um, my siblings all had the right of, um, to tell me to not put something in the book, you know, everything that was in here was vetted by them. And, um, the amazing thing is that they didn't ask me to take out anything, you know, and I talk about some pretty, pretty, um, uh, personal family wounds in this book. So. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, I wanted to ask too, you've done a lot of traveling and your family seems to have this kind of, um, traveling mythos about them you know you were just reading this story about cars and earlier before the event we were chatting about how you've been sort of moving around a lot and uh has that experience kind of fed into writing as a process for you or inspired you to write in any particular way um it just seems like storytelling a lot of that uh kind of feels like traveling with somebody else or with another partner so mm -hmm. uh, i wondered if that might be sort of uh, something that has inspired you at all uh certainly traveling has inspired me um in many ways, um, I, I've, you know, I've traveled around the world. I spent pretty much 15 years just traveling as much as I could. And then I thought I was settling down. I, I married late in life and I thought I was settling down. Well, it's just continued. My husband is just much of, of a wanderer as I am. Um, but I think, you know, I, I think in terms of that influence on my writing, I think the, the greatest influence has been, um, has been a kind of understanding of, of, sacred landscape, actually, you know, that I've been to so many incredible 
places in the world, and uh, particularly, I have to say, Ireland, that there's this real, um, there's a thinning of the veil between um, between worlds in Ireland, and and uh, Ireland is just full of, of sacred landscape that you can see. It's right there. You know, it's still there. Um, and that has been tremendously influential on me and just um, really what, um, certainly what, um, what I learned from both my mother and my grandmother who, were, who, were, who loved nature and, and really saw sacred landscape everywhere, including Staten Island. And I don't know if any of you know anything about Staten Island, and it is a damaged um, part of New York City. It was the dumping ground for New York City for decades. It had the largest man-made structure for the longest time, and that structure was the um, was the Great Kills um, garbage dump. You know, so and and my, both my mother and my grandmother just saw the basic integrity of that landscape and never lost sight of that. And that that really has been very influential for me in just trying to figure out my own. Um, you know, um, my own philosophy, my own you know, spirituality. It's just that. that hmm. belief, so. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the book and uh, what you discovered in the process of writing it and researching it. Was there anything? Uh, was there anything that you found out about your mother or your grandmother that sort of surprised you in researching? I mean, it's one thing to kind of live through it and then reflect on it, and maybe another thing to try to piece all this together and be talking to other people and that sort of a thing. Um, what sort of jumped out with you and, and stuck with you? Well, you know, that's, um, that is a common question. And, um, interestingly enough, in terms of my, my grandmother and my mother, um, nothing surprised me. I mean, I, I did find out that I had a few facts wrong. I mean, memory is a strange thing and, and you, you can really misremember many things. And so it was, it was very helpful to, you know, I, I grew up with the stories. I grew up with my memories. It was very helpful to actually go back to the record. And I was very lucky in the research of this book, because there is so much, there are so many diaries from various members of the family, um, so many letters, so many archives that are holding on to this information that um, I was very lucky. Um, but my, both my mother and my grandmother were incredibly honest people. You know, they, they, they were pretty on the mark in terms of their honesty. You know, there were things that they didn't talk about. Um, and there was one area in which I was totally... Well, I can't even say I was surprised. It actually was something, I learned something very important in my family. And um, when I learned it, it, it just made sense. I mean, it was like, ah. Um, and that was the story of my father. That, you know, my parents split um, when I was less than two years old. And I never really knew my father very well. And um, he confused me. You know, he was a tormented man. He had, there was a lot of uh, issues. He was, he was alcoholic. Um, he was very angry. He, you know, he, he had a lot of, um, he was a difficult man to have a conversation with, a difficult man to get to know. And, um, and I couldn't understand why, why he was the way he was. And, um, what happened, what happened, I'll, I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll just tell you what the That's surprise true. was. <laughs> uh, the surprise that wasn't a surprise. Um, you know, my, my father, uh, remained a devout Catholic until he died when he was 92 years old. And, um, he w had an absolute fear of dying and, um, he was afraid that he was going to hell. And, um, I just could not understand this. Um, he and my mother had, you know, they had telephone conversations through the, the last year of my father's, um, years of my father's life. And he had asked her for forgiveness. You know, I'm so sorry that, um, that, um, you know, I didn't fulfill my responsibilities. 
as a father and a husband. Um, and my mother was like, you know, of course you're forgiven. You were forgiven, you know, the moment, you know, it was my mother's decision to end the marriage. Um, you know, she understood that my father couldn't bear that responsibility. And, um, and so, you know, I couldn't figure out, well, what was it that was so unforgivable in my father's mind uh, of what happened? And why was he afraid to die? Why was he afraid of going to hell? And uh, he was a diarist, so I went back to his diaries, and I went back to um, his diaries that he wrote as a very young man, 17, 18, 19. And um, very difficult to read. He had this horrible handwriting, very small, and um, it really was, it, it took me a long time to piece together his story. And what I discovered with his story is that his very first love, the very first person that he fell in love with, was a young man. And they were deeply in love. And um, when I found that out, it was like, as I said, it was like everything made sense, you know. And um, when I told my siblings what I had discovered, my siblings were, yes, of course, that makes perfect sense. We really finally could put that last piece of the puzzle of my father's life. So, um, and that, interestingly enough, is, um, you know, my, my mother's experience with that. You know, the, the Catholic worker um, always, from the very beginning, had... Um, um, gay men come to help be part of the community. So both my grandmother and my mother knew, you know, from early on um, uh, their lives and their situation. And um, I think it really was one of the reasons why my mother left the church because she she could not um, she could not take that on that exclusivity that um, rejection uh, of men that she knew and loved. Hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that in Catholic worker communities? I mean. One thing that makes them so fascinating and compelling is exactly those contradictions, and you mentioned that in your presentation earlier. Uh, contradictions in terms of social life, contradictions maybe sometimes with what the church is officially saying and what they might be practicing, uh, especially with LGBT folks. Um, I know there's a Catholic worker house here in Toronto, and uh, I was chatting with a friend of mine um, who's here today uh, a, a while back about how um, when he first came to Toronto, he went to a Catholic worker house here. And they had a rainbow flag out, and uh, Pope Benedict was the Pope, and that was a very amazing sort of symbol and sign. Uh, how did the Catholic worker sort of navigate all those tensions and figure out their own place? And, you know, Dorothy Day's on the way to sainthood, uh, presumably. So, um, yeah, what do, you, what do you make about that, kind of reflecting back? Um, it's a problem, actually. Um, you know, the Catholic worker hasn't always dealt with it very well. Um, Basically, it's kind of like a, um, by and large, I mean, every Catholic worker house is different. Every Catholic worker house chooses a different way. I mean, ultimately, it's just person to person. You know, my grandmother, you know, she took on the church's teachings against homosexuality. Um, and yet, there was a, you know, these are the men that she knew and loved. And um, there was a time... Um, that um, one of the men at the houses had uh, fallen deeply in love with a, a young man, and it was unrequited, and he was just uh, inconsolable. And um, my grandmother just consoled him as best as she could. And, and that was what it came down to, is that, okay, you have these, this church teaching, but, you know, you... You can't reject people. You just can't. The Catholic worker isn't about rejecting people. Um, this is, there are some workers that are, 
you know, I, I hate to say it, but who are anti-gay. And there are other workers that are absolutely so welcoming and, you know, and, and so many Catholic workers are started, you know, by gays. So, you know, it's, it's this, it's this contradiction. It's this paradox. Um, um, and I don't know, you know, there's no answer to it. I mean, I, I think that, um, there is no, you know, and until the church changes its teachings, you know, there's going to be this conflict. Uh, the way you were just describing it kind of reminds me of what you said at the beginning of your talk about uh, your grandmother having this very maternal impulse and how that's a side that hadn't really been presented. Could you sort of speak to that? You know, why was it so important to bring out those uh, um, motherly moments, both for your grandmother and for your mother, in the story of the Catholic worker? How do you think that really fed into the building of the worker and the maintenance of it? Um, why was that important for you? Um, well, I think we, you know, people speak of Dorothy Day as social activist, as, you know, one of the most prominent U.S. Catholics in the 20th century, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, no one was speaking about her as a mother. And um, I think, you know, when you, it's interesting when you said the word motherly, I was like thinking, I don't know if I would refer to her as motherly, <laughs> <laughs> but um she was indeed a mother, um, not only of my mother, but of, of many, many people. And she was a grandmother to many, many people, not just, you know, me and my siblings. There were, um, there was a whole generation of, of kids in the 60s and 70s that called my grandmother granny, you know, as I do, as, as my siblings and I do. And so her, and she, she herself spoke about how just she had this huge family, um, and I think why that's important to me. One is, as I said earlier, you know, it was, it was the birth of my mom that, that really focused her, you know, really said to her, I, I need to do something with my life. Um, and then, um, also I think it's this, this concept, this, this wider, as I also mentioned earlier, this wider concept of what family is that, um, you know, it's, we have a very narrow concept of it. And, um, this does a great deal of damage to many, many people. Um, there are many people who do not have families, and and so so the idea of just widening your your circle to in include, um, you know, hundreds of people um, really was quite extraordinary. And and my grandmother had the shoulders to to do that, hmm. definitely. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about some of those political associations uh, that Dorothy had when she was younger than as she grew uh, in the worker. So. I'm just curious because she and Peter Morin were some of the most recognizable uh, people call them Christian anarchists. In some cases, they called themselves Christian anarchists um, in American history, at least. Uh, how do you think they related to that situation of kind of the early 20th century, mid 20th century American left um, before and during the McCarthy years? You know, she wrote for a socialist paper. She became a Catholic, tried to kind of think these two things together. What do they mean for her to be a kind of Christian anarchist in the United States? Huh. <laughs> All right, let's see if I can dive into this one. Um, well, she and Peter Morin were actually quite different in their in their relationship with the American Catholic left um, because she grew up, uh, you know, she, as I said, she was educated in this whole um, time, you know, and she was writing about it as a journalist. Um, and she was very much connected to... Um, labor unions. I mean, she, she really was very um, loyal to that early education that she had, whereas Peter um, really had no interest in that kind of, that 
that area. You know, he would say things like, strikes don't strike me, you know, things of that nature. And, and my grandmother really, um, she made sure that she was covering all the strikes that were happening in, in the Catholic Worker paper. She wrote a lot about what was happening in, in, in the U.S. along those lines. Um, politically, it's, you know, as I said earlier, my grandmother never voted. So she, in a way, she, um, this idea of Christian anarchism, um, you don't wait for politicians to do the right thing. You don't wait for economics, economists to do the the right thing. Um, You don't wait for any kind of structures. Um, You know, you help people navigate. Certainly, it's one of the things of of the Catholic worker. They help people navigate to get their paperwork, to get their, you know, their medical coverage, to do all that stuff. But that, um, that, that's not, that's not the goal. The goal is to change every single one of us to do what we need to do to help each other, that that is what will bring about true change, not not the government. The government will not bring about you know, that kind of level of, of change in society. Hmm. And do you think the Catholic worker really provided, you know, an alternative sort of a, like a witness to how that might be possible, um, you know, at its best moments, hopefully, I guess? Uh, it seems like a very complicated legacy. I mean, you've lived in several communities over over the years in your own experience do you feel like it has kind of shown maybe that that's a a workable idea or do you think that it's shown that maybe that's not as easy as it seems um i don't know if the catholic worker will ever be workable um and it it's certainly itself i mean it's a miracle there's no reason why the catholic worker should exist um you know that said my my grandmother believed that she failed you know, she died feeling that um, she was a failure in, in that terms. But um, she says we can't give up. You know, she says we won't see any of the, the changes in our lifetime. So we have to. She really had a long view. She said, even though we will fail. And she said Christ was a failure. You know, um, we have to expect failure. Um, but we have to keep doing it and we have to keep, keep, we have to keep the long view in, in mind, you know, beyond our lives. So we just have to, we have to have faith that, um, what we do makes an effect, make, has an effect. Um, and that's all we can do. I mean, in terms of the Catholic worker being a model, you know, I, you know, people have said, um, some, uh, a fellow recently said, someone just told me that since Dorothy died, the Catholic worker has just gone down the tubes. And he says, what do you think? Has the Catholic worker gone down the tubes? And I looked at him and I said, the Catholic worker has always been going down the tubes. <laughs> That's what it does, you know, <laughs> and, and it keeps going, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, it, what are the answers? There are no easy answers, you know, and certainly my grandmother said that. People really want black and white answers. They want instructions. And she says, you know, the problems of the world are immense. The... Um, the you know this one of her quotes you know the problem our problems stem from our acceptance of this filthy rotten system um and she said we we cannot live outside of this system so everything that we do is is a compromise um and all we can do is the best we can it's like what i was saying when i was writing the book i can only do the best i can um i want to ask you in that same kind of vein, you know, the political situation in the United States 
has changed uh, in the last six or seven months, in case any of you have heard. Um, <laughs> haven't heard, that's kind of a big deal. Um, what does it mean for the Catholic worker to inhabit a situation like this? I mean, one story that came out in the news over the summer is there were two women from the Des Moines Catholic worker who were arrested voluntarily. They gave themselves up for uh, sabotaging an oil pipeline, um, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And uh, that situation is still ongoing. They're being investigated by the FBI, etc. And uh, I just remember seeing that and feeling like a certain sense of conviction, you know, that, well, I'm not doing that. I'm studying in a PhD program here in Toronto. Um, but also a sense of hope that well, I'm really happy that there are people out there doing that or, you know, willing to at least kind of do something that they think is right uh, at a great personal cost to them. And the Catholic Worker House there had really kind of rallied around them and had been putting out information about them, etc. Um, given this kind of climate that we have now, uh, do you see kind of signs for new ways in which the Catholic Worker might speak into the situation, new resources that uh, your mother or your grandmother even might be able to um, continue to sort of inspire that kind of activism? Um, well, that's an interesting example of what the Catholic Worker is doing. It's actually, um, their action was quite divisive within the Catholic Worker. Um, it's, uh, it's a little bit on the side of too much violence, even though it's just a, a virtually almost symbolic sabotage. I can't remember exactly what the, what the damage they did was, but, um, this is, the, that action was not universally, um, supported within the Catholic worker movement. Um, and my grandmother had a, she had an ambivalence towards, towards, um, for example, the Barrican brothers, um, when they were doing their destroying the uh, draft records in the late sixties and early seventies, um, she she had personally experienced being sabotaged herself in the Catholic worker, you know, um, papers being destroyed, etc. And, and she says, you know, if you don't want it done to yourself, don't do it to others. Even though, of course, it's not quite the same thing talking about um, a pipeline or a warhead. You know, the plowshares actions—they they do symbolic damage to um, missiles. Um, still very active um, doing that. And um, and sh and you know, my grandmother just said, "Well, that's not really what I'm talking about." But she also had a great deal of of. Um, understanding for people who put their bodies on the line to get arrested and go to prison you know going to prison she said it is a real suffering and so she she wanted to support people in that in that way but um that kind of that kind of action is is you know divisive within the worker itself um so it's hard for me to be able to to address that as you know you know as, as that is I mean, I guess I can say that is one one way that Catholic workers, um, you know, express their displeasure. But um, that was unique. That that action was mm -hmm. unique, actually, mm -hmm. in terms that it was it was actual sabotage that right. has never been done before mm -hmm. from any Catholic worker. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, could we talk a little bit about how Dorothy is on the road to canonization? Um, how do you think that she might be a saint for our times? I mean, she's getting a lot of airtime in the United States more recently, especially since Pope Francis's address at Congress. Um, you know, do you think there are things about her life in particular, things that she said, etc., that are just sort of maybe particularly necessary for our time now? I mean, she had an ambivalence, I guess, about being called a saint for all the reasons you addressed earlier, but... Uh, what might it mean for the church to kind of, you know, recognize her as a a, a moral witness worth uh, repeating? 
Well, I think it just opens up so much that that the church has kind of tried to avoid, and that is that it does have uh, a program for social justice. Um, I think also it opens up a a real interesting um, dialogue that, you know, again, what I mentioned earlier, people want black and white answers, you know, especially in religion. It's amazing. And I'm like thinking, how in the world can you get black and white answers in, in religion? It's like it's trying to deal with the mystery of life. Um, and I think what, you know, what, what, what she has to bring, which, which is quite extraordinary, is this idea that you put yourself in the line, you get arrested, you know, there's something that you really, really feel is unjust, you just go out there and, and, and get arrested. And, and that's, you know, um, particularly for Americans, that's a very challenging thing. Um, and if, you know, if, if this is, and also the idea of voluntary poverty. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, voluntary poverty, the idea, especially in, in the U.S., that you you give up what you don't need um, for others is an extraordinary concept. You know, um, it's not really American in many ways. Um, the idea of pacifism. I mean, she was so clear about her pacifism. You know, every single war, she was very clear. Um, you know, you, you don't go this way. Do not go down this route. And um, this is very, very challenging to, um, you know, to the church. It's very challenging. There's still, there's still the, um, a strong belief in the just war theory. Um, St. Fran- Francis, Pope Francis, <laughs> um, has started to, to open up the dialogue that maybe, well, maybe this is, this is bogus, that there is no such thing as a just war. So, um, so it's interesting, that, that combination. It's interesting to, to see Pope Francis come out with, with so many things that were exactly what my grandmother was speaking about, you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. So. Yeah. Um, well, I'll ask you one more question, and then we'll turn it over to everybody else. I'm sure they're very eager. Um, you mentioned earlier that you're still writing, and you'll continue to be writing. And uh, with this under your belt, I wonder if you might have anything you'd want to say about projects that you're working on now. I mean... Is there anything with this leftover material that didn't make it into this book that you're uh, able to work on and put it publish elsewhere? What do you think about that? Uh, I think it's going to be a trilogy. <laughs> um, you know, as I said, there was there's so many stories that were taken out of the book of, of people that I grew up with, um, incredible stories, amazing stories, and um, and I know it. I think my publisher was right. There's a limited um, readership for that, but I think it's enough, and I think it's important enough. I, I really want to do that. Combined with photographs, I also have um, thousands of photographs of my grandmother, my mother, and the Catholic worker, and um, I think I can really pull together, you know. Uh, a very interesting book. So that's one. And the, the third, which is actually the one that I'm working on now, is um, I was taken out of this book. You know, there's there's a lot of me in, in here because I, I believe that, um, uh, you know, if you start have if you start allowing Dorothy Day to have any influence on you, um, or if, if you read anything, um, you know, if you're truly paying attention, your life will be changed. And I'm no exception to that. Um, you know, some people ask me, well, what do you find most admirable about your grandmother? And I'm like, admirable? I don't have the ability to admire her. It's just right there. You know, there's no admiration. It's like, you pay attention to her, and your life will be changed. She will ask you to change your life. If you're not paying attention to her, then you can say, oh, I admire her. And um, that's part of the reason why she said, don't call me a saint. I don't want to be dismissed so easily, is that the, the term admiration just doesn't work um, if you really as I say, paying attention. And so I tried to pay attention. Um, this is another thing that my mother would say to me, pay attention. Um, 
And um, in that process, in the process of writing this book, I was undergoing my own kind of conversion. So um, my next book will actually be that kind of memoir, that spiritual memoir. Great. Well, we'll look forward to that. So he's the first person, the, the hardest one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, yeah. So, uh, yeah, thanks so much for being here. Um, I'm Keegan, and I'm a student here at ICS doing my uh, master's degree. Yeah, so I was really interested um, that you spoke about this tension that you feel between um, your grandmother's kind of deep faith and uh, your mother's experience, like, leaving the church. And uh, you said that that tension is in a way like your own history. So I sort of had two questions about that. Um, the first one being, uh, do you think it's important to kind of try and reconcile that tension at all? Or do you think that allowing the tension to be can be a source of strength for you? And uh, the second question would be, do you have a personal devotional life in sort of a Catholic sense at all? And... Um, if so, or if not, I guess, how does that connect with the work of the uh, of the Catholic Worker Movement? Thanks. Okay, first question. Um, have I been able to reconcile the two different, uh, my, my grandmother's faith and my mother's loss of faith? Um, you know, I think the lesson for me has been, I've spent years trying to reconcile them and couldn't. And... Um, and I think the lesson for me has been is that it's a paradox. Um, I have to hold them both, um, and I and I am holding them both because I do I do absolutely understand both positions so deeply. I can feel it so deeply, um, and that kind of segues into to my own faith practice, um, and that is if you ask me one day whether I'm a practicing Catholic, I'll say yes. And if you ask me the next day, I'll say no. Um, and both are true, you know, in this very strange way. And I've had to accept that, you know. Um, you know, sometimes people ask me a lot, are, are you in the church? And for a while, I said no. And then I started to say yes. And then I realized, I don't know if either answer is correct. <laughs> um but yeah, on, on the other hand, it's like, well, did I, I, can I be outside the church? I don't even know if I can be outside of it. Um, I have grave problems with the Catholic Church, as practically every single Catholic I know has. Um, there are things there that, that are devastating. There are wounds. There are huge wounds in the church. And those wounds do need to be healed somehow. Um, I, how I deal with that personally, as I say, you know, I can go to Mass, and for virtually all the Mass, I will be spitting mad. And then, you know, I'll receive communion, and I'll say, oh, that's why I'm here. Um, but by and large, I have to admit that um, outside of the Catholic worker, the Catholic Church makes no sense to me. Um, it really doesn't. It really is the Catholic worker that makes sense to me. No. Not sure how to word this, um, but when you said that nobody talks about uh, 
Dorothy as a mother? That's a really interesting question for me is, I guess, what it means to be a parent and to live kind of a radical or a radically welcoming lifestyle. And you talked about kind of the, the, the suffering that both your mother and your grandmother experienced. And I guess it's one thing to, to suffer for a radical lifestyle they've chosen. And it's quite another as the child of, because you don't choose it. Um, so I'm wondering if you have anything. Um, maybe you talk about it. In the yeah, moment. no, it's a great question. And a lot of people ask me that question because it's a, it's a question on many people's minds. How do they raise their kids and also, um, you know, live out their, their beliefs? Um, especially if they're going to end up in prison. Um, and, um, you know, again, there's no easy answers. Um, you know, my mom did suffer in, in terms of early on when, when her, when her mother would go and speak, travel around the country and, um, and that those separations were very, very difficult for my mother and for, for my grandmother. But, um, and my mom went to boarding school at that time. And um, she said, this is, and my mother was a very cluey kid. Um, she said that every single child in that boarding school was a child of a single parent. And so to her, that was just normal, you know, that um, single parents sent their kids to boarding school. Single parents had to work. And, and her mother was no different. I mean, her, her work was just different. You know, it was the Catholic worker. But basically, it came down to that. Um, in terms of, of uh, another interesting thing is that my grandmother didn't get arrested any during any of the periods that my mother was growing up, so she didn't spend any time in jail during that time. I don't know if, uh, if that was a conscious decision, but that, that is how it worked out. Another thing that I think is absolutely essential in this picture is that um, if you're going to do this and you're going to raise kids, you need a greater community to help that, um, and certainly my grandmother did that. My mother was raised by many aunties and uncles. Home Catholic worker, but you do have to have a, a real strong support system. Um, my grandmother also said with, with families that um, if you're raising young kids, it's best not to have a house of hospitality. That that's just too complicated. But I know many families who have who have had what they call Christ room. You know, have one room and that they're able to provide hospitality for people. So. You know, and it's, it's, it's one of these questions in which um, each family has to work it out themselves, you know, based on what kind of support system they have, um, what their kids are like. You know, some kids are able to totally understand what's going on, and other kids aren't, you know. So I think it, it really is a case-by-case um, -case, um, issue. Hi. It's probably a bit of a continuation from the previous question. So you've commented that your mother and your grandmother both had very difficult lives from your perspective as that next generation down. Would your nieces and nephews, the next generation down, looking at their aunts and uncles and parents, including yourself, would they also have that same comment? Would they also see that you and your siblings grew up as immersed in the Catholic worker movement as your mother had and how it affected you and your siblings growing up? Well, that's a new question. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know what my, my, my nieces and nephews, um, how they view us. You know, I certainly have hoped one of the reasons, you know, I'm, one of the things I'm hoping will come out of this book is that they'll actually read this, you know, um, and learn about their family history. Um, you know, it's a different time. 
my grandmother and mother lived at very, very different times. Um, and a lot of the, the things that they experienced, a lot of the suffering that they, that they experienced, is things that are qu- quite unimaginable today. I think, you know, we just live in a, di- a different world. Um, I, you know, my siblings have definitely gone through deep suffering. So I think, um, I don't know, in a way it's just family life, isn't it? You know, especially, well, when you have a big family, it means that you really run the gamut of all the things that can go wrong. Um, but it is, it is family life. I mean, we all kind of go through these, these, um, these same things, these same issues, these same, you know, uh, mental illness, you know, alcoholism, um, you know, these things, uh, you know, other illnesses. Um, I mean, we all we all experience them as families. So I, I don't really know. I guess it's more like a it's it's not so much what's happened. I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, so if you don't mind, um, I suspect it's it's. Um, I I really don't actually don't know what I think. Um, I really, I really don't know. I mean, I guess the, the short answer to your question is, um, I don't know. I don't know what the next generation, how that, how they view suffering and hardship. Um, I am very interested to hear about um, this phenomenon of telling the stories of people, of other people's stories, especially people that um, we we know intimately. Um, I think there's. Uh, a very interesting difference in people who write biographies of people that they know versus people who write biographies of people that they don't know. Um, and if you could just talk a little bit about if your relationship changed with these two women before writing the book and after writing the book, and if not, um, why, why not? And if so, you know, how and in what ways that relationship kind of, um, grew as you sort of pinned them down in this in this writing process uh it's a great question um yes my relationship with them changed um and it changed because well i understood them more i knew them more and i fell in love with them um which isn't to say that I would, um, I felt intimidated by them while I was writing this book. I mean, talk about intimidation, you know, my grandmother and my mother sitting on my shoulder. <laughs> I can hear them. Why are you writing that? <laughs> um, but also just this, the, uh, the support that I, I felt also from them in, in writing this. But, um, you know, I, I had a lot of lot of questions that I didn't understand. I didn't understand um, why their relationship was so difficult. I mean, these are two people who loved each other so deeply. I mean, I, I have to say that um, their relationship is the um, most powerful example that I have experienced in my life of what a relationship is like. That it it um, it really was the strongest relationship that I have ever had the privilege of witnessing between the two of them. And um, they had every reason in the world, reasons in the world to fall apart. Any moment they could have fallen apart. And I think in, in any, any other uh, two people, it would have fallen apart. But um, they did not. They kept it. They kept their love. And um, that was of incredible um, meaning to me, you know, to know that um, you can do this. You can 
still love your family members no matter what, no matter what. And um, as I said, it really made me feel deeper in love with them as I as I wrote about very uh, intimate things. You know, I revealed, you know, their intimate lives. Um, and and I believe that I did okay <laughs> that, and that they're happy with it. So... Thank you. I missed uh, the early part of your presentation today, but uh, if you've covered this, I apologize. How did, what was the process that you went through to choose the title about love? Um, well, the title is The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. Um, and um, this actually, <laughs> the process... Beauty, sorry. Beauty. Yeah. Um, the process, there wasn't any. It just came to me. I mean, I had been reading my grandmother's diaries um, that had just been published um, right after my mother's death in 2008. And, um, and it really jumped out at me. In, in the later years of her life, her diary entries really got very brief, very distilled. And um, she would just kind of write these quotes that would, um, as she would wake up first in the morning. And one of these quotes was, the world would be saved by beauty. And this is a quote from Dostoevsky. It's from The Idiot. Um, and uh, when I saw that, I mean, I had been familiar with the quote, but but this was a this was a new era for me. My mother had just died. And, um, you know, there's a moment when that happens. I mean, it, 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 um, it just cracks you wide open, you know, the death of a parent. And... Um, and this phrase came into that crack, and I, and it, and it just it um, it has helped me so much that this phrase, and it it just seemed to embody everything that my grandmother was doing and my mother, um, and it gives me so much hope. I mean, and I love the fact that the the publisher retained the title. I mean, that was the first title that came into my head, and I kept it. And I I had no idea. Usually, you know, publishers change titles of books. They did not change the title book, though they did insert Dorothy Day in front of it, because, and that has to do with searches on the computer. Um, so I was delighted, and uh, the reason, many reasons why I'm delighted that it's still the title is that, to me, it's a prayer. You know, every time I say the title, every time someone else says the title, it's like sending a prayer out into the world. The world will be saved by beauty. Another reason why I... I love it is that it really provokes me and I hope it provokes others. Oh, what does that mean? I mean, what is, what is beauty? What does it mean? Um, and why will the world be saved by it? And to me, it's, it kind of, it, it like cuts the Gordian knot of all of our very complex social problems. Um, uh, the, the ways in which we are just kind of burying ourselves under, uh, great difficulties. And it just seems to be get, getting harder and harder. And this, in a way, just cuts through all of that, cuts through that Gordian knot, and um, and just kind of, I hope anyway, it's a, or certainly from my personal experience, is that um, beauty to me is anything that just um, transforms me, um, that it, it changes my relationship with the world, it changes my relationship with others, um, that it it, it it cuts through all of the judgments that we make, all of the um, uh, the beliefs that we believe we have, um, you know, all of the intellectualization of our lives, and it just goes directly to the heart. And to me, that that's the way we're going to um, kind of 
reclaim, um, you know, uh, a decent life or, you know, um, to reclaim, well, to take one example, um, you know, if we don't feel the beauty of the natural world, we won't, our hearts won't be so open that, you know, we won't do anything about it. We'll just accept its destruction. You know, but once you open your heart, once you feel that, once you have that transformation, and I'm trying to put into words what I, I mean, it's not something that you can articulate. It's not something that I can articulate. So I'm, I know I'm just making a mess of it. But um, just this, it just represents a way to me to bypass everything that we have built, every barrier, barrier that we have built between us, our heart, and the rest of the world. Any other questions? Great. Well, uh, thank you so much, Kate, for spending time with us. Uh, we do have some more coffee, tea, muffins, and you can all help yourself to that. Uh, but let's go ahead and give Kate a round of applause again for spending so much time. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. In the upcoming episodes, I'll be uh, turning over the hosting responsibilities to some other junior members here at ICS, so you'll get a bit of a window into what students are working on, what professors are looking at, and maybe a bit of a different look at what life is like here at ICS. In the meantime, you can find us on social media, and that'll help you stay up to date on episodes that are coming out. We are on Facebook as the Institute for Christian Studies, and on Twitter at INSCHR, I-N-S-C-H-R. You can also send us an email with any thoughts, corrections, comments, or suggestions at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu.